0: William Collins presents Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. This is a history of our times. This is a history of the pioneering women who defied the odds to transform modern Britain. This is a history of women who achieved remarkable things but have faded into oblivion. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention which tells the stories of incredible women from the 1880s to the modern day. In this final episode, we'll meet Elizabeth Niamayaro, Laura Bates, Caroline Criado-Perez, as well as incredible female MPs serving in all strands of government powerful women writers who've written their names into history, and the current crop of determined, resilient campaigners who collectively target a broad spectrum of injustices. However, the narrative that women have achieved full equality and that our job is done is frankly ludicrous. So we'll also explore the new mechanisms for silencing women that have evolved in the modern era. Part 1 The conclusion that sexism and misogyny can only be conquered if men are prepared to buy into feminism underpinned the UN's ambitious 2014 campaign He for She, launched by the actress and UN Women Goodwill Ambassador Emma Watson. Watson began her speech by checking her Western privilege, acknowledging that my parents didn't love me less because I was born a daughter. My school did not limit me because I was a girl. My mentors didn't assume that I would go less far because I might give birth to a child one day. She went on to make the point that men too are imprisoned by gender stereotypes, particularly the compulsion to show strength through aggression. If men don't have to be aggressive in order to be accepted, women won't feel compelled to be submissive. If men don't have to control, women won't have to be controlled. Watson is the public face of he for she but the project was conceived by the political scientist Elizabeth Nyamayaro, Senior Advisor for UN Women. As a child, Nayama survived on UNICEF food parcels when the small village in Zimbabwe where she and her family lived was hit by a drought. Aged 10, she went to live with an aunt in Harare and attended a private school alongside British children. As she told Elle, At school I was way behind everyone else. I couldn't read or write English. But during the holidays I would go back to my village and I no longer fitted in there. I felt guilty because I realised how privileged I was. I wanted to do something about it. Nyama Yarrow left Zimbabwe when she was 21 and moved to London, studying first at a small college in Notting Hill, then at the London School of Economics where she took an MSc in politics. After further studies at Harvard, she worked at the pharmaceutical company Merck as Director External Affairs and Policy Africa and in their Corporate Strategy Office. He for She is a great example of a successful, feminist, social media-driven awareness-raising movement, and Nyama Yarrow's ambition to make it an advocacy platform to change public policy and the law is commendable. Another fantastic example of an awareness-raising platform is Everyday Sexism. Founded as a website in 2012, Everyday Sexism is a collection of stories uploaded by women detailing their experiences of sexist abuse and harassment. Former actress Laura Bates was inspired to found it after enduring what she calls another week of little pinpricks, a man who seized her hand outside a cafe and refused to let go, another who followed her off the bus and propositioned me all the way to my front door. She started for the first time to consider how many of these little incidents I was putting up with from day to day. Just how many other women were experiencing them too is astonishing. By December 2013... The site had 50,000 entries. By April 2015, 100,000. But for her efforts, Bates found herself abused and vilified on social media, the recipient of thousands of rape and death threats from men, some bizarrely detailed. People talk about specific serial killers they admire and who they would like to emulate and about the different weapons that they fantasise about using on you and in what order. It is quite twisted stuff. It was a similar story for Caroline Criado Perez, the Brazilian-born British feminist activist who succeeded in getting an image of Jane Austen onto the £10 banknote. The Bank of England had announced that Winston Churchill would replace the prison reformer Elizabeth Fry on the £5 note from 2016, meaning the only woman on notes issued by the bank was the Queen. This enraged Criado Perez, who had already launched her online directory of female experts, The Women's Room, to tackle the problem of women's media invisibility after listening to discussions on Radio 4's flagship Today programme about teenage pregnancies and breast cancer, which featured no contributions from women experts. Thanks to Criado Perez's efforts, which included an online petition, a letter to the bank accusing it of breaching the public sector equality duty and frenzied social and other media activity, The bank caved in. But like Laura Bates before her, Criado Perez's reward was staggering levels of online abuse. Two of her most persistent trolls, John Nimmo and Isabella Sawley, were jailed in 2014. Nimmo had also trolled the feminist Labour MP Stella Creasy. On being released, he continued to offend, emailing the Jewish Labour MP Luciana Berger a picture of a large knife and the message Watch your back, Jewish scum. He was jailed again in February 2017. I know from personal experience that this kind of abuse is frightening, depressing and exhausting, yet another layer of crap to deal with. Time and again, and not because of anything they have or haven't done, women are forced into the role of victim. An American movement called Women Against Feminism blames feminism for encouraging this self-identification. But this is ridiculous. Women are victimised. Therefore, they are victims of violence, abuse, oppression and inequality. And as someone once nearly sang, sisters are not doing it to themselves. Sometimes the stories make me want to scream with frustration. In February 2018, the head of the London Fire Brigade, Danny Cotton, got the full you stupid cow, why don't you die treatment after launching a campaign to encourage people to talk about firefighters rather than firemen. When it was put to her that this would mean the cartoon character Fireman Sam being rechristened Firefighter Sam, she was obliged to point out that it wouldn't because he is not real. He is not a person, he is a cartoon. I just want him to join us and call himself a firefighter. This is all about male fear, and we have been here before. The feminist literary critic Elaine Showalter identified a similar phenomenon at the end of the 19th century as new women and the promise of suffrage chipped away at male supremacy. In periods of cultural insecurity, she writes, when there are fears of regression and degeneration, the longing for strict border controls around the definition of gender as well as race, class and nationality becomes especially intense. It's important to appreciate how freaked out some men have been by hashtag MeToo. In a matter of months, everything seems to have changed. Office conduct which once struck men as innocuous, a wink here, a bottom pat there, has been reappraised as harassment. Add to this the growing sense that gender is less fixed than people once thought, and where does that leave some men who feel they have nothing to be proud of except the accident of having been born male? But this isn't a book about them. It is about a hundred and more years of bloody brilliant women. So I want to end by thinking about this generation of BBWs, as I've taken to calling them. Pleasingly, there's no shortage. These are just examples from off the top of my head, some well-known, some not, and invite you to add your own. Clever, talented female politicians exist across the spectrum, from Nicola Sturgeon and Mary Black, SNP, to Leanne Wood, Plaid Cymru, Jess Phillips and Angela Rayner, Labour, Eleanor Smith, the West Midlands' first MP from an African-Caribbean background in Enoch Powell's old seat, Margot James and down-but-not-out Amber Rudd, Conservative. Let's not forget Sophie Walker of the Women's Equality Party, founded by Sandy Toxvig and Catherine Mayer in 2015. Cressida Dick's appointment as Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police in February 2017, the first woman to serve in the role, was very exciting. The high-achieving daughter of academics, Oxford-born and educated Dick joined the police in 1983 as a constable. She had a low profile until 2005, when, while she was gold commander of Operation Kratos, designed to combat suicide bombers, the Brazilian electrician Jean-Charles de Menezes was shot at Stockwell tube station in a tragic case of mistaken identity. At the inquest, Dick was exonerated of blame. At a difficult time for the Met, with knife crime soaring and terrorism a constant threat, Dick will doubtless be braced for battles over funding and attacks on her gender and, as a lesbian, on her sexuality. There are so many powerful female writers around at the moment that it feels invidious to single any out. But I would be surprised if future generations didn't look approvingly upon Hilary Mantel, queen of the historical novel. Carol Ann Duffy, probably my favourite living poet. Naomi Alderman, British heir to Margaret Atwood. Ali Smith, gleeful enthusiast and inspired experimentalist. Sarah Waters, peerless storyteller. Catelyn Moran, who did so much to extend the reach of feminism with her salty, empowering 2011 bestseller How to Be a Woman, and, of course, J.K. Rowling. No one's going to forget J.K. Rowling in a hurry, are they? The current crop of determined, resilient female campaigners bear comparison with their early 20th century counterparts, a point that surely won't be lost on future historians. Collectively, they target a broad spectrum of injustices. Leila Hussein and Nimco Ali have worked to combat gender based violence against women, especially female genital mutilation, while the likes of Avon and Somerset Constabulary's brilliant DCI Leanne Puck try valiantly to prosecute its practitioners within Britain. Arminka Helich, now Baroness Helich, first came to Britain as a Bosnian Muslim refugee in the early 1990s. While working as Special Advisor to William Haig when he was Foreign Secretary, Helich and her Foreign Office colleague, Chloe Dalton, spearheaded a campaign to end sexual violence in war zones. She's currently doing inspirational work with Angelina Jolie at the not-for-profit foundation she co-founded with Jolie and Dalton. Shasta Gahir at the Muslim Women's Network deserves a special mention. She founded the charity, which offers specialised help and support to Muslim women, after tiring of constantly seeing only men from the Muslim Council of Britain representing her community on TV. As she told The Guardian, they were the only Muslim voices on TV, the only ones talking to the government. It didn't seem right that they were all men. As Director of Liberty for 13 years, Shami Chakrabarti did incomparable work promoting human rights before accepting the role of Shadow Attorney General in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Paris Lease has moved the often fraught conversation around gender and identity into the mainstream with grace and charm, using positive dialogue to advance the transgender cause. On the art side, Jude Kelly has done amazing work as artistic director of the South Bank Centre. In 2010, she founded the Women of the World Festival, music, film, comedy, talks and celebrating girls and women. It's now a global phenomenon. There have been more than 40 wows in 23 countries across six continents, and I feel privileged to have taken part in its speed mentoring sessions for school-age girls on the London Eye. As I write this, Kelly has just announced that she's stepping down from the South Bank Centre after 12 years to concentrate on WOW. There are city women like Helena Morrissey, who combined being CEO of Newton Investment Management with being a mother of nine, and found time to set up the 30% Club to encourage better female representation in boardrooms. In a great example of he-for-she role reversal, her husband Richard gave up his job as a financial journalist to look after their ever-increasing brood. He's subsequently trained as a Buddhist priest. He used to hate it when people asked him what he did, hated the term house-husband, and felt the social pressure on men to conform, Morrissey admitted to the Daily Telegraph. She's provided a timely update to Sheryl Sandberg's advice, questioning the value of leaning into a patriarchal system. Rather than aping men by bossing their way to the top, Morrissey argues that women need to remake the system so that it works for them. The self-confessed only senior black woman in the advertising industry, Karen Blackett is chief executive of the UK's largest media agency, Mediacom, where she has done sterling work improving access to the industry and encouraging diversity. As she has put it, there is a clear business case for diversity. In the UK, 83% of all purchase decisions are made by women and we need to do more in terms of marketing ourselves to a diverse range of talent to reflect this. One woman who has defied the underrepresentation of black women in science is Maggie Aderin-Pocock. An honorary research associate at University College London's Department of Physics and Astronomy, she overcame both dyslexia and being warned off science at school to devote admirable amounts of energy to conveying the magic of it both on TV shows like The Sky at Night and through her company Science Innovation. Then there are the women who have had power thrust upon them by tragedy. For Jo Cox, it happened posthumously, not that the dedicated Labour MP hadn't already achieved a great deal by the time she was shot and stabbed multiple times by right-wing recluse Thomas Mayer on the 16th of June 2016. Similarly, the horrific racist murder of her son Stephen in 1993 drove Doreen Lawrence to become a fierce forensic campaigner for police reform. It's easy when reflecting on the progress made by women over the last 100 years to be outraged and think, well, of course that wouldn't happen now. We would recognise and champion the brilliance of, for example, Rosalind Franklin. But when you read that women accounted for only 11.5% of applicants for engineering jobs in 2014, your heart sinks all over again. We need more women like the structural engineers Roma Agrawal, who spent six years developing the foundations and spire of the tallest building in Western Europe, London's Shard, and Alex Mitchell, who worked on Crossrail's Connaught Tunnel project. As new channels for communication have proliferated, so new mechanisms for silencing women have evolved. Women may not be ignored and overlooked as they once were, but they are shouted down, humiliated, not taken seriously, and so locked out of the centres of power. As Mary Beard has written in her excellent book Women and Power, for a female MP to be Minister of Women or of Education or Health is a very different thing from being Chancellor of the Exchequer, a post which no woman in the United Kingdom has yet filled. And most shameful of all, women still bear the brunt of male violence, with two killed every week in England and Wales by a current or former partner. If hashtag MeToo is to mean anything, it has to be rewriting that tragic narrative. Part 2 So as we look to the future, it seems fair to ask if posterity works differently for women. Does it mean different things for women? early 19th-century Romantic culture favoured a genius-will-out theory of posterity. But with the exception of Frankenstein author Mary Shelley, all those geniuses – Wordsworth, Shelley, Coleridge – turned out to be men. For most of the Victorian era, women's writing was judged secondary and ephemeral. The sight of a woman's name on a book cover sent an instant signal that it was a frivolous, light-hearted romance, hence the use of male pseudonyms by George Eliot and the Brontes – and Elizabeth Gaskell's decision to publish her first novel Mary Barton anonymously, though modesty was also a factor with Mrs Gaskell. Wordsworth dedicated two poems to his young writer friend Maria Dewsbury, but Dewsbury herself was under no illusion that anything she wrote would stand a similar chance of lasting. Did it even deserve to last? A man may erect himself from such a state of despondency, throwing all his energies into some great work, something that shall beget for him perpetual benediction. He may live for and with posterity, she wrote. But a woman's mind? What is it? A woman? What can she do? Her head is, after all, only another heart. She reveals her feelings through the medium of her imagination. She tells her dreams and dies. Again, Mary Shelley confounds this diagnosis. Her dream or other nightmare will outlive us all. Posterity found Jane Austen. She never sought it. We don't even have a clear, reliable sense of what she looked like. After Jane's death, her sister Cassandra destroyed the vast bulk of her letters, saving from the fire a small number not for posterity, but to give away as mementos. Our knowledge of Austen's life is full of gaps, which even the best biographies hedge and stutter trying to plug. There is a theory that Austen owed her place in the canon to the fact that her novels chimed strongly with men, who then wore their devotion like a Victoria Cross. Virginia Woolf, who was agnostic about Austen, She found her difficult to catch in the act of greatness, noted this tendency and mocked in a room of one's own what she called the 25 elderly gentlemen living in the neighbourhood of London who resent any slight upon Austen's genius, as if it were an insult to the chastity of their aunts. At the risk of earning Virginia's disapproval, I am not agnostic about Jane Austen. I believe in her, absolutely. Last autumn, on our way back from a camping trip to the South Downs, My husband, daughters and I stopped off in Chawton to visit the house where Austen spent the last seven years of her life. My daughters were fascinated by Chawton Cottage. though puzzled about why Jane, Cassandra and their mother lived as charity cases in such a small house while her brother Edward Austen Knight, the favoured heir of their father's cousin, got to live in Chawton House, the Elizabethan manor up the road. It's complicated, I said, but basically it's to do with something called patriarchy. Oh, I am such a barrel of laughs. Jane was close to her brother and a frequent visitor to his house. I went up to the great house between three and four and dawdled away an hour very comfortably, she wrote in 1814. Beautifully restored by the American philanthropist Sandy Lerner, Chawton House is now a library devoted to neglected and forgotten women writers from 1600 to 1830, such as Mary Astle, Aphra Ben, Maria Edgeworth, Anne Radcliffe and Charlotte Smith. Sadly, last year Lerner stepped down from its board of trustees and Chawton House's long-term future is uncertain. Hopefully a new funding stream will be found soon because it really is an extraordinary, inspiring place. Walking in its exquisite walled garden with its herb garden inspired by Elizabeth Blackwell's A Curious Herbal, 1737-39, I was struck afresh by the importance of instilling in women a sense of continuity, so that present-day oppressions and triumphs, it's not all bad news, can be connected to those of the immediate and distant past. In Austen's time, an elegant, well-stocked garden was seen as an agent of moral growth, a link for women between the domestic life of the house and the outside world with all its dangers and temptations. To be a disciple of flora was a noble thing. Flowers are pretty, after all. But the sharp warning with which Mary Wollstonecraft opens a vindication of the rights of women published in 1792 when Austen was 16, comes wrapped in a gardening metaphor. The current conduct and manners of women, she writes, show clearly that their minds are not in a healthy state. As with flowers planted in soil that is too rich, strength and usefulness are sacrificed to beauty, and the flamboyant leaves, after giving pleasure to viewers, fade on the stalk, disregarded, long before it was the time for them to reach maturity. I'm optimistic that today's women are built for the long haul, that they have what it takes to smash through glass ceilings, be heard over the massed ranks of haters and follow in the footsteps of the women you have just been reading about. So let's raise a glass to strength, usefulness and not fading on the stalk and the coming generations of bloody brilliant women. Thank you for listening to the final episode of Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention is available now in paperback from all good bookstores and as an audiobook and e-book from Apple Books, published by William Collins.